Psalm 100. Johann Sebastian Bach is responsible for some of the most joyful and beautiful and spectacular music ever heard by the human ear. And even a Neanderthal convict like me can appreciate that. Uh, Bach uh, uh, said of his music when he was asked what his purpose for his music was, he said this, I aim to compose well-regulated church music to the glory of God. Hardly that inspiring, is it? It sounds a bit dull and bland. But by well-regulated church music, Bach did not mean boring, tidy, simplistic music. Instead, Bach meant music ordered by another world, another place, music that echoed another world and another place, the order of heaven. What he was attempting to do as he wrote his music, and especially in his cantatas with the, the words of his music, was to bring the song of heaven down to earth, a song that he was convinced was a song of overwhelming joy. What Bach wanted more than anything else was to have that reality invade our world, our drab world, so that we would know that there is a deeper joy, there is another order than all of this in front of us. One of his most uh, famous cantatas was his 51st, a cantata that actually has at its heart, or at least the opening aria of it, this psalm that we have in front of us tonight, Psalm 100. And basically what Bach was doing as he was attempting to bring the song of heaven down to earth, he put his ear to heaven, to the word of the God of heaven that we have in front of us and here in Psalm 100 is what he had. Put your ear to this psalm tonight and what you hear is the very song they sing in heaven right now. And it is indeed, as Bach hoped, a song of overwhelming and spontaneous joy. Did you hear it as Graham read it out for us earlier, a verse after verse, wave after wave of joyful, thankful gladness. Absolutely every note of this short song is uplifting. It's wonderful. But I wonder if you look at it now with me, just these five short verses of joyful praise. As you look down it, is it not also a bit disconcerting? The more we hear this song, the more we look at these words, the more they jar surely with our experience in this world. The more they seem far from this world and our experience. I mean, in no sense, if you look down at these verses, does this song carry the echoes of the world that you and I live in? For sure there are in our world flashes of joy, moments of gladness, reasons for thanks. But are they not too often drowned out by other themes, other notes, other songs? Songs that keep coming at us, uh, that jar with the one we have in front of us. Our world is one sung in a minor key. But into a world like ours, our God sings this song from his heaven. It is, if you like, his song of joyful protest his song from another world and if you listen to it as we will tonight, if you really listen to it, it should stop you in your tracks and have your jaw drop open with a shout of joy. Now that's what this psalm promises to do for you in just five short verses. And God knows how how different it is from our experience. So what he does in this song is he doesn't invite you to join in this song, he commands you to that you may not miss out on the joy of it. 
Now, did you notice that as we had it read out for us, Psalm 100 in just five verses has six commands from our God. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, these commands to join this song. And I don't know about you, but I don't like commands very much. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to be uh, under the, uh, the will of another. But all the way through the scriptures, God tells us when it comes to his commands to trust him because his commands are not burdensome. In fact, they lead to joy. So let's explore them together tonight, these commands in Psalm 100. And we start with the one I think that is the foundation for all the others, the reason for all the other commands. It's right there in the heart of the psalm, verse 3. The first thing you are to do is to know. Know that the Lord is God. God starts here and he commands this of us because he wants us to be sure of who he is in this world. So that we're not people who are forever speculating about what God is like and who he is. I mean, that's what we do as humans, don't we? I like to think God is like this. But God says, I want you to know who I am. I don't want you to guess. The God of this world, the God of heaven is knowable. As we open his word tonight, he is speaking to us that we might know him. Uh, The word you have in front of you is a word of disclosure, a word of revelation, a word written by the very Spirit of God, the same Spirit that is speaking to your heart right now that you may know God. It's the very reason he speaks, that you may know him. But don't get the wrong idea here in verse 3. This is not just a call from God, a command from him to know the facts about God. This is a call to relationship. The Hebrew word here in verse 3 for know is not just about facts and information. In fact, it's the word the Old Testament uses for the relationship of a husband and a wife, intimate relationship. When God speaks to you by his word and through his spirit, when you read the Bible, it's an act of relationship. And if you want proof of that, if you want proof that knowing God is, is more than just factual, it's personal, consider how he has spoken to us. Those famous words at the very start of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, says that in the past God has spoken to us in many and various ways, in the prophets, in the the stories of the Old Testament, in the history of the Old Testament, in the poems and the songs. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, the Lord Jesus. God speaks that we might know him and his most decisive word is not a fact but a person, Jesus. And so if you are to obey the command to know that the Lord is God, that's where you must start. Know his son. And in Psalm 100 we are told two things about this Lord that we are to know. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to know? Well, the first one you did see there in verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It seems so simple, doesn't it? But it has huge implications. Do you see them there? lined up for us in verse 3. If he is God, it is he who made us. He made you. You're a creature. Uh, There's no such thing uh, in this room or anywhere in this world as a self-made man or woman. Now, uh, there aren't many, I don't think, that are arrogant enough or deluded enough to think that they are indeed self-made. But our rejection of this reality here in verse 3 is a bit more subtle than that, isn't it? 
I mean, consider where we live here in Forward in South Yorkshire, surrounded as we are by abundant resources, by amazing beauty, by the change of seasons that we're experiencing at the moment. But rather than respond with genuine thanks to the God who has made all of that and us, slowly it mutates into some sort of creeping sense of entitlement. Of course I deserve to be here. And we don't just do it with uh, the creation around us, we do it with our own abilities. If you're starting uh, life as a student uh, in these last few weeks, uh, that's what's ahead of you, that temptation. Uh, As you start to discover the abilities that God has given you and you you start to plot out the path ahead of your career, the further we go along, we uh, feel less and less in need of a God. Haven't I done well? Who is God that I should know him? And so the psalm starts where it must. You are a creature. You think you don't need the Lord? Did you hear the creed that we read out earlier about the Lord Jesus, the one who we're told holds this very earth together tonight? The one who is about to give you your next heartbeat? The one who knows how many you have left? There's a scary thought. He is your God. He made you. And if you are to know even a glimpse of the joy of this psalm, you must start there. But the implications here in verse 3 go even deeper than that. Not only did he make us, do you see it there? We are his. I don't own my life. I'm owned by another. As I head out into the world, as I make my plans and decisions, as I think and act and speak, I do so as one who belongs to another. And doesn't that change reality somewhat? I mean, self-determination is a prized attribute for a human, isn't it? To be fully human, you have to be self-determined. Yes? Well, no, says God. You don't determine who you are or what your purpose is. It is he who made you. You are his. And there's your identity in this world. Let me ask you tonight, who are you in this world? Uh, 2010, who are you? You're a student? A mum? A pensioner? A doctor? An addict? A businessman? Uh, who, who do you tell people you are when they ask who you are and what you do? Uh, what's your, your identity marker that says, this is who I am? You're a husband? Uh, an artist? Well, God says, really, is that who you are? What happens if that identity marker uh, for some reason goes? What what happens if the thing that that you use to tell people who you are is is not possible anymore? That you begin your university course but for some reason a year from now you have to stop? Or your marriage crumbles or your business folds? Who are you then? That's why you need to know the truth about your God because only then can you know who you actually are. what your unchangeable status is in this world. You are his. And more than that, uh, and this struck me uh, this week, do you see what it actually says? It doesn't say you are his, it says we are his. Doesn't that change the the way I regard others? Who they are to me, uh, how important they are, how I measure their worth in this world. 
They, like me, are fearfully and wonderfully and deliberately made. I best be careful how I treat them, because they're his. And one more implication from the knowledge that the Lord is God. You see it there at the end of verse 3. We are the sheep of his pasture. The God who made us has a purpose for us. You're not some sort of dice randomly rolled out on this green planet to find your own purpose. Your life has order and purpose. He has marked that out for you. And none of it comes from you. It comes from him. The truth is is that the Lord is God. And you cannot begin to answer questions of who you are and what you're meant to be about without knowing him. Which is why, by the way, we here are so focused on Jesus. Why he is the focus of all our songs, our prayers and our sermons. It is because he is the one who reveals that the Lord is God. Absolutely everything he said in his teaching, everything he did declares his power. That he is God over evil, over sickness, over sin, over nature, even over death. It's only through him that we can know for sure that the Lord is God. There's a second thing we're meant to know about this Lord who is God. Do you see it there in verse 5? Not only is he God, but he is good. When you come to know the Lord is your God, when you know that he made you, that you are his and he determines your purpose, is it not a great relief to know that that God is good? The one who has power over all of those things, who controls all of those things, he's good. You've got nothing to fear from him. And again, a a bit like Bach's description of his music, good sounds a bit mediocre, doesn't it, on our scale of good, better, best. That's just at the beginning. I don't want a good God. I want a best God. You've got to understand what the Hebrew is doing here. This is a a sort of an extreme version of good. It's sort of you've got good, better, best, and then you've just got good. It's basically like saying, well, there's your scale. Forget the scale. He's off the charts. He's off the scale. He's in his own scale. Uh, there's not some unit of measurement that you can measure God's goodness uh, by something else. He is the unit of measurement. He is good. As Jesus himself said when questioned, he said, no one is good but God alone. And see here in verse 5 that his goodness is revealed where it really matters. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. His love to you is a forever love. It's an unyielding love, a love that does not stop. And how faithful is he? Well, generation after generation of people like you and I who ignore and reject his purposes, well, he stays the course. The Lord who is God and good says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have planned, that I will do. And if you want to see this unyielding love, this faithful purpose. Look once again to Jesus. See God's decisive response to people like you and I who to a man and a woman live as if the Lord is not God or good. As if we are self-made and self-determining and self-satisfying people. A pattern of life that, that does so much damage to us and leads to his judgment. We'll see in Jesus God's faithful response. See his enduring love withstanding relentless rejection of him and his purposes. You want to know how good your God is? 
will keep coming back to this place, the cross. And there you will know for sure that the Lord is God and that he is very good. Put your ear to heaven tonight and hear the song. A song that echoes the deep reality we must come to know more and more if we are to know the joy and gladness and thanksgiving and praise of this song. The Lord is God and he is good. And the more we know that, the more the other commands of this song will make sense to us and we will obey them with joy. So let's look at them briefly. You'll see them on the back of your outline. I want to pick up four of them, starting with verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord. If you know God is the Lord is God and he is good, this is the automatic response. A shout of joy. It's a shout that comes from an overwhelming sense of who he is. And note here, it's not a careful, crafted musical note. This is a a verse for people like me. I was about to say you and I, I don't want to speak for you, but who are completely tone deaf, who are appreciative that this room is full of people when we sing together, that no one can actually hear how badly I'm singing. This is not a musical note. This is a joyful noise, a yawp, a whoop. It's the sound of victory. In fact, it's a word the Old Testament uses to describe the sound an army makes when they've had an unexpected victory. Everything was against them and all of a sudden, victory comes. It's the same word used when uh, the Israelite army are lined up against Goliath and the Philistines and they're all petrified and can't move, can't take on this huge Goliath. Up walks David and slays him with a stone and all of a sudden, the bravery begins. All of a sudden, Israel are, are... are shouting for joy and charging across the valley. How do you like me now, Philistines? Now, I reckon there are shouts of joy heard in our world, but all too often they're about things that hardly matter. Uh, If you were watching the TV this afternoon, you would have heard them from the Ryder Cup as a little white ball went into a hole. You would have heard them in football grounds all around this country today. And if uh, you had the misfortune of joining us as a staff team, we went away earlier at the start of the week on Monday morning. We left far too early and most people hadn't had breakfast or coffee and it was an ugly sight. And there we were driving along the motorway and then just around the corner, out of the mist and the rain, comes the golden arches. And grown men and women leapt and shouted for joy at the sight of it all for a a double sausage and egg McMuffin. It was good though. (laughs) Let me tell you, this psalm says, better than the Ryder Cup or a, a sausage and egg McMuffin, try this, your God who is good has won. This is a psalm first sung to people in Israel who were downcast and couldn't see victory at all. They were told not to, to look back. Remember these psalms that we're looking at here are looking back to the time of Moses, to the time of the Exodus. They were told, remember your shouts of joy as you were on the other side of the Red Sea, as you, as you saw God's mighty outstretched arm take you out of Egypt and defeat your enemies. Remember that? That feeling? Shout for joy again. Your God who did it back then will do it again. And whatever cause to shout for joy Israel had, you have so much more in the Lord Jesus. Consider your victory in him. Colossians 2 says this, you were dead in your sins. 
But God has made you alive again in Christ. He forgave you. He nailed your sins to the cross. He disarmed your enemies of sin and death. And he made a public spectacle of them and he triumphed them over them by his cross. There's a reason to shout. Sin and death lie dead before you, before his cross. And like the army that lined up behind King David who felt instant bravery, how much more brave should you feel? Standing behind your king, the Lord Jesus, who says, where, O death, is your victory? And the more we come to know the Lord who is God and good, the more we will feel this overwhelming joy. Let me pause to say how different this picture is to the one many have of God. To many, God is a killjoy. How wrong can you be? Put your ear to this world and the shouts of joy are few and far between and often prompted by ephemeral things like a roadside macker's. Put your ear to heaven and hear thousands upon thousands from every tribe and tongue roaring and whooping because the king who is God and good has won. We'll see the next command, verse 2. Worship the Lord with gladness. When we bow down before him, that's what worship means, bowing down. The sound we make, do you see it there? Gladness. It literally means a, a giddy gladness, a, a laughter. You, you can't keep it in. It's a sort of gladness a free man feels who never thought he'd be released and all of a sudden he's the other side of the prison. Well, our gladness again comes from our freedom from sin and death forever. You ever known that feeling of being so surprised by something you can't help but laugh about it? Well, sometimes when we come to God, that's the last thing we feel. We come with our tears And that's right. And sometimes we crawl to him weighed down by pain or guilt and that is right. But here in verse 2, even in the midst of tears or pain or failure comes a gladness that outlasts all of that. As another psalm says, weeping may remain for a night but rejoicing comes in the morning. Again, how different this is to the songs of this earth. How different it is to life on this earth. Life for us always ends the other way around, not with joy and laughter, but with tears. You think I'm overstating it? You'd only think that if death has never come close to you. One of the hardest bits of my job uh, is taking funerals. I take many a funeral for people who know nothing of the, the Lord that we are thinking about tonight, nothing of his goodness. It's the hardest, most harrowing, most draining part of my job. Let me tell you, as you sit with them in a crematorium, all the gladness has gone. As I meet with families before a funeral, I often hear of earlier times, of moments of joy and gladness that filled their homes. Their memories are memories of laughter and that's what they want to share with people on the day. But when the day actually comes, death comes and steals all the joy, all the laughter, all the gladness. Ours is a world sung in a minor key. But here in this song from another world comes another tune of this Lord who is God and good, who even in the valley of the shadow of death, even there walks with us, that our path may be one of gladness. Do you know that experience? 
the more you know of him, and I mean really know him, the more overwhelming is the impulse, even in the last days of life, to burst into laughter as we grieve. Because we are free from any fear days like that hold. Two more commands. The next one again is in verse 2. Come before him with joyful songs. Now, come before him is a, is a very common Hebrew idiom that, that simply means to, to be face to face with someone, to sit at table as if you're having a meal together and you're, you're opposite each other, staring into each other's face. But the simplicity and the commonness of that phrase masks the wonder of what's being said here. Do you see it? Come and sit at table face to face with your God. Do you see what's happened with these commands as we've gone from verse 1 in? In verse 1, the picture of a shout of joy is almost like we're in a stadium and, and there's our king in the middle and we're all cheering him on, this king who was one. By verse 2, we've gone to his throne. We're, we're, we've got out of our seat and we're down on the ground and we're down bowing before his throne and now we're sitting at table with him sharing a meal. This is an invitation to deep friendship with your God, to know him and be known by him. It's actually the very purpose for which your good God made you, to know him as friend. He invites you to sit at his table. You're welcome there to feast on his goodness because that's where your joy will come from. And every time you open his word, you are coming face to face with your God. I wonder if you thought about that as you you open up your Bible bleary-eyed in the morning for a quiet time. You are face to face with the Lord. We are here to be a people who when we gather together of a Sunday and read the scriptures or in our small groups or on our own long to meet our God face to face. One final command in verse 4. Enter his gates and his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Why all the thanksgiving and praise? Because the, the gates and courts of his temple, and that's what it's referring to here, where our God dwells, where he may be known, well, they're open. I can walk right up to his gates. They're not closed. There's no padlock on it. There's nothing stopping me. I walk in and I go into his courts and no one stops me, even though they probably should. It reminded me of a number of years ago. I've got a friend, uh, Scott, and uh, he and I uh, went on a tour of Ireland together and we ended up in Dublin and uh, we'd, we'd seen on the, the youth hostel uh, notice board uh, you could take a tour of Lansdowne Road, uh, rugby union field, the, the sort of famous field where we see many a great Australian victory on the television. <laughs> and so we thought, we've got to go see it, you know, where they scored in the corner in that, uh, that World Cup. You probably don't remember. And so there, there Scott and I were and we, we got there and we're looking around for the official tour and we couldn't see anyone and what we could see in front of us was the actual ground and, well, the gate was open. We thought, well, maybe this is a tour. You, you go through the gate and all of a sudden we're through the gate and onto the field. No one in sight. Scott had decided to bring a football along with him for some strange reason and so we, we thought, well, well, we're here. And so we started reenacting that great scene where we scored in the corner and there we were and it's going great and Scott decided to sort of embellish it a little and he was going to take a kick for goal. And so there I was standing behind the goal and he's lining himself up, getting himself in the right position and what I see starting to happen behind him is a security guard <laughs> edging closer and closer to Scott and I'm madly waving away trying to say, we've got to make a quick getaway here, Scott. 
But it was too late. By the time the tap on the shoulder came and then the Irish voice saying, Sir, I wonder if you'd mind leaving. You've no right to be here. That was more Indian, wasn't it? But, <laughs> but I remember those words very clearly as we made haste far away from the field. You have no right to be here. Who do you think you are? Well, not so with our Lord. Not so with his presence. See the goodness of his invitation. His gates should be shut to you. Do you know what it says at the end of Revelation? We've been looking at Revelation in the morning. Revelation 21 says of the gates of heaven, it says nothing impure will enter them. Nothing. Well, I challenge you to find a a year where that is true of you. Nothing impure. Actually, scratch that. I challenge you to find an hour of your life where that is true. Where there's not been an impure thought or motive or action. Nothing impure shall enter my gates. And his courts, well, they're his, not mine. I'm not his people. In fact, in the Old Testament court, there there was an outer court where people like you and I, the Gentiles, were allowed there, but no further. We'll see the wonder of the Lord Jesus. Because of his goodness at the cross, the gates are flung open and I am beckoned in. My path is laid by his blood and no one can tell me not to go. I'm welcome at his house. There's no no tap on the shoulder coming. No one to ask me to leave. I I may look like an imposter. My actions may betray me as an imposter, but it's not so. I'm free to stay. He has paid the price. Such is his goodness that through Jesus I may approach his throne with shouts of joy and gladness and thanksgiving and praise. I belong there. And so as we close, let me ask you this. Is this your song? If you're here tonight and you do not know the Lord who is God and good, did you see the invitation to you at the start of this psalm in verse 1? This is not a song and an invitation for just uh, regulars here or, or people who are Christians. You see, they shout for joy to the Lord who? All the earth. This is a song for all comers. This is a song for anyone who is trying to take control of their own life. A song for those who doubt that the Lord is God and he is good. This is a song that says such is his powerful goodness towards you that he calls you back even now. It is in fact a song inviting you to another world. Another world that sounds fanciful, doesn't it? The the stuff of make-believe. But it's not. It's very real. There is another world coming. And while you may think this is the real one, this world is passing away. There is coming a day when heaven will come down to earth and a new world will be formed and those who have claimed this song as their own will be welcomed there. And that place will be filled with songs like this. There will be no minor key there. No more death, no more sadness, no more tears, just a whoop and a laugh and thankful praise. And so consider in this song tonight, if you do not know this, Lord, that consider it your invitation to know him. Come and see for yourself. And for the Christian, those who claim this song as their own, let me ask you, does it ring true? Is yours a life of joy and gladness, thanksgiving and praise? 
That's a hard question, isn't it? Yeah, there might be moments where I feel that joy and gladness and thanksgiving process just bubbling up in me. But then there are plenty of other moments where that seems hard to muster. Not always feel that way. This afternoon uh, was a hard one for me. My parents have been uh, over in the UK for, for a year or so. It was an unexpected blessing that God gave us when we moved here. And uh, this afternoon marked their final goodbye. They, they head back to London to fly out uh, tomorrow. I hate saying goodbye. There's no joy in it. And so as I read this psalm and as I preach to you tonight, it's hard to say, yes, I feel that way all the time. And I'm sure you feel that too. Well, Christian, here is a song that has content to lift your heart this night and every moment that follows. And it's not a song for the future, just when we get to heaven. It is a song for now, because right now Colossians says you are seated with him in heaven. You have every right to sing it. Ours is to be a life of joy and gladness and thanksgiving and praise. And the more, like me this afternoon, our hearts falter and fail to remember that the Lord is God and good, the more the reality of this world weighs down our heart, the more life draws our sight away from these heavenly realities, the more you and I need to sing this song for one another. As we have tonight, as we must through this week, that more and more our lives are ordered by the song of another place. Bach, inspired by this psalm, finished his 51st cantata with these words and I finished with them too. Completely ourselves and trust to him, with all our heart upon him build, so that our heart, soul and mind to him firmly would adhere. Thereupon we sing at this hour, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.